Welcome, everybody, to episode 29 of the Rex Chapman Show with super cool, super awesome, super dope, super sexy Josh Hopkins, who is not with us again this week. Uh, the last time, our last pod, Josh was not with us. Uh, his dad, 88 years old, Larry Hopkins, passed away. He didn't, he just passed away in the last couple of weeks. A Marine. One of the best effing guys you'll ever know. Uh, congressman from the state of Kentucky. Just a fun man. And uh, uh, his services have been the last couple of weeks. Josh is still not with us. He'll be back with us probably next week or during our next pod. Uh, but I wanted to let everyone know and please uh, uh, send your thoughts to Josh Hopkins and his family on the passing of Larry Hopkins. A gem of a man. Um, all right, episode twenty-nine. Uh, famous twenty-nines over time history. Paul Silas, I know, was twenty-nine. A former coach of mine in Phoenix. Uh, Purvis Ellison, former teammate of mine, number twenty-nine. And I got to say this: uh, Josh's Josh Hopkins' favorite athlete all time, uh, aside from me. <laughs> is Eric Dickerson, 29. What a running back. What a player. What a guy. Um, you know, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, all of that good stuff, everyone. I'm thinking about the NBA right now. and Some of the teams, some of the games have been canceled, postponed, I guess. Uh, rather, they've been postponed. Um, I'm doubtful that they'll postpone things on Christmas. But it's getting a little bit dicey. Plus, playing on Christmas sucks as a player. I played on one Christmas Day game. Fortunately, it was at home. We played the Lakers. Uh, I want to say it was Kobe's rookie year, Steve Nash's rookie year, Phoenix and the Lakers. They smashed us on, on Christmas Day. Um, but it was nice being at home where you could have Christmas and Santa Claus with your little children. I always thought playing on Christmas just sucked, especially for, for the teams playing on the road. But it's a great job. Just one of those things. Uh, so I'm looking forward to Christmas Day games uh, coming up. Uh, you know, haven't had book club in a couple of weeks. Speaking of which, haven't read a damn thing. That's been book club. And uh, the other thing I want to touch on, it's just it's kind of weird, is that uh, right now everybody's testing positive for coronavirus, of course, but the NBA is kind of, well, allowing teams to field players uh, <laughs> from other leagues, the G League, um, really just trying to keep eight available players on each roster so that you can get these games in. I'm all for it. I think it's fantastic. I think it's awesome for the young players, these guys that are getting shots. Uh, I watched a game the other night. The Nets, uh, who did the Nets, who were they playing? They took a loss. But several of the guys playing for the Nets, guy named Devin Duke, uh, David Duke, just went off. Guys that you've rarely heard of before. 
getting their shot to play in NBA games and get real minutes. I mean, some guys are coming straight from the G League and starting in these NBA games. Um, you know, weird circumstances, but I, I appreciate the effort and I appreciate the NBA allowing these guys uh, the freedom to come up and and do this. Uh, it's taken some uh, it's taken some ingenuity. So kudos to the NBA. All right. Uh, I want to get into this episode, episode 29. I'm so excited for this one. We have a Hall of Famer. We have a native New Yorker. We have play-by-play man of the New York Knicks and the NBA on ESPN slash ABC. Bang! We have Mike Breen. I'm so pleased to have Mike. Uh, not someone that I've spent a ton of time around over the years, but we do know one another, and I'm so fortunate to have him on the show today. The voice of the Knicks, the New York Knicks play-by-play guy for NBA on ESPN, ABC, and Hall of Fame class of 2020 member, Michael E. Breen. Welcome, Mike. Well, first off, I haven't been called Michael E. Breen since I was in grade school. I wanted to ask you that because uh, first, I try to get everybody's middle name and some guys we just can't track down. I have a middle net initial E as well. And people are always underwhelmed when I tell them what my middle name is, Everett. Uh, so, Michael E. Breen, what are you? Well, I could, I, I say this all the time to people try and guess it. I give you, I would have never guessed Everett in 10 guesses. You wouldn't get mine in probably 10 guesses either. <sighs> Evan Edward, no, uh, I, no clue. Eugene. I wouldn't have got it in 10, maybe 12, maybe so 12. I, I went to grade school with, with another Mike Breen, and he didn't have a middle name. So the teacher used to call Michael Eugene, and I hated it. Oh, I, mean, I bet. I he bet. He out after sixth grade, and it had nothing to do with him personally. I just was, I was so happy. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you here, Mike. I was talking to our guys, uh, our crew, before you came on, and I remember being a, a player. I was probably midway through my career when you started uh, – there with the Knicks in the mid nineties, I guess. Well, early nineties for radio, but TV in mid nineties. Right. I missed your Charlotte years. I didn't call any of your Charlotte years, but when you got to Washington, that's when I, I started calling some of your games. And see, that's, that's what I remember because by and large around the league at that time, most of the play-by-play guys were, were pretty old or older. I should say uh, they were about your age now. <laughs> there's no there's no question about it and, which i'm a little just a little younger but you you know i remember looking over and all of a sudden there's this young guy that's doing the games what was that like uh it was it's a dream come true i, I grew up grew up in new york as a, as a crazy knicks fan and and to call games and to sit there courtside uh, even to this day and i'm not just saying this rex to this day i i I, I can't believe that I've had this job now calling NBA games for 30 years. But back then, um, it was just, it was wonderful um, because I, I loved the game. I loved the NBA. And back then when, when I was young, you know, it was, it was cool to meet players and try and establish relationships work-wise. And um, it's, it, it's amazing how it transforms to now. Like I'm, I'm the old dude that some of the <laughs> 
and it, it makes for different. It's almost kind of like your relationship is more uh, parental than it is buddies. And you, you know, when you first break in and, and it's hard not to, um, you become friends with some of the guys. Yeah. I've had some lifelong friendships now and it just, it evolves into a different relationship as you get older. Isn't that beautiful though? I, I think back, you know, most of the play-by-play -play and color guys that worked for our teams, you know, that the different teams that I played on, I became big buddies with them, you know, and you travel, you, you run in the same circles. It's gotta be one of the, one of the great, well, I I'll, I'm sure we'll get into it here before long, but you know, you work with Jeff Van Gundy and Mark Jackson. I've known Mark forever. I've known Jeff for almost forever. Talk for just a second about how great those guys are. I, I mean, and you've just got a magic way of, of, of dealing with them. Well, for, first off, um, those we grew up together, the three of us. Mark was a player when I first started, a young player. Jeff was an, a young assistant coach. So, you know, we've, we've watched each other kind of grow up, and we've watched our families and our kids grow up together. And, and you know, I remember Jeff's kids when they were babies. I remember Mark's kids when they were little, and they remember mine when, when they were babies. It's, it's, a, it's a cool part of it. And as much as – Again, I, I, I say this all the time. I'm blessed far beyond what I deserve doing this for a living. But working with those two, two guys who are lifelong friends, has made it just so much better. Um, and not just off the air as great, great pals, but as on the air, continuity, like when you play basketball, continuity in the broadcast booth, uh, you can't put a price on it. And, you know, we finish each other's sentences. We know each other so well. It makes it so much easier and so much more fun. No question. And you know what? Of course, you know this because you you guys have been doing it forever. The people love it. But that comes across. It just comes across. And I can only imagine sitting down there with, you know, three of my two of my best buddies, you know, in just a different city. But you're taking that little your little living room there and giving it to everyone. And, and it is just magic watching you guys, Mike. Bill, Rex, that you couldn't say anything that'd make me happier in terms of what we do on the air because that's what we try and, and get across. And, and the thing is, like, people try and say, oh, you like, you, you, I appreciate the kind words about uh, how dealing with them, but it's not me dealing with them. It's not me reining them in. I have no shot at reining those two in, no shot, uh, because they, they do what they want to do. But here's the beauty of it because um, three men booth, I, I think, is hard in the NBA. Um, to have two analysts, but the key with those two, and it was the key with another three, three men booth that I loved. And that was uh, Billy Packer and Al McGuire. I remember as a kid, loved listening to them. You, you not only have to love working with the guy as a guy, you, you have to like each other, but you have to respect their, their basketball knowledge. And that's the beauty of Mark and Jeff. They, they have such respect for each other as players, as coaches, and just and their the way they look at the game, that in addition to their friendship, it just makes it for it's so much fun because you can say anything to them and they can say anything to me um, and nobody's feelings get hurt. So it's just uh, it's an experience that uh, I, I never thought I'd have. And it's like I said, it's just such a blessing. You, you put that so beautifully. And as I'm sitting here and you're describing it, it it's one of the you know, when you have a, a basketball team, you know, that's that are all pass first guys. It rarely works, but you are all pass first guys. 
And you don't, you know, those guys aren't fighting over what to say and not everybody, you're not trying to get in, you know, you're not being paid by the word. Of course, you know that, but it's just a beautiful team to watch. You pass the, pass the mic to one another just so beautifully. And it's a, it's a real blessing for us on this side. So just know that. Thank you. Bas- basketball played is a team sport. Basketball broadcast is a team sport and not just us, uh, you know, Purdue, our longtime producer, Tim Corrigan, we had a longtime director, Jimmy Moore, who just retired. It's it's like a family, and there's so many people in the truck. The unsung heroes are the cameramen. What what these guys and gals do is just it's phenomenal. So it, it really is a full team that you know <clears throat> when you come out of a, a broadcast and you think like, okay, we did this one pretty well. Uh, <laughs> a wonderful team feeling. And it, it has to be. The Rex Chapman Show, powered by Basketball News, is sponsored by Prize Picks. Prize Picks is the easy way to play daily fantasy. It's daily fantasy simplified. It's just you versus the projected numbers. You can pick from two up to five players and an over-under on their projected stats for a single game and win up to 10 times on any entry. Prize Picks is safe and offers fast withdrawals. Prize Picks allows mixed sports entries, offering every sport you can think of, NBA, college basketball, the NFL, soccer, MMA, and more. Your prize picks entries can be made in 60 seconds or less. It's that easy. You can take the over on LeBron's points combined with the over on Patrick Mahomes passing yards. If you want, you can receive a match on your deposits up to $100 using our exclusive promo code news. That's promo code news for an instant 100% deposit match on up to $100. Prize picks has an award-winning, easy-to-use mobile app. Available in the App Store and Google. Uh, how did growing up in Yonkers, you know, and that sense of community there kind of mold your childhood, your sports, and set you up for a Hall of Fame career? Well, I, I grew up, I was one of six boys. So sports was, wow. it was not an option. <laughs> <laughs> I was four out of the six. And, you know, my three older brothers, my dad, all crazy sports fans. So you just you just went along and and it was every day. Every day you did something in our neighborhood. We didn't have a, a dryer. We had a, a, a washer, oh. but we didn't have a dryer. And my mother would hang up all the sweat socks on the clothesline in the backyard. And it was like the joke of the neighborhood because the entire clothesline and it was about, I'm going to say, five months long. Was nothing but sweat socks because it was back in the day. Remember when we used to you'd wear three and four? You wear two, three, four pair. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was like the one of the, uh, the the jokes of the neighborhood that you know the brains and all the sweat socks up there. So you know I didn't stand a chance of of not being falling in love with sports. And you know my dad was was you know he just loved every sport, watched it all the time, and we all just took our cue from him. Amazing. Amazing. Um, now, did you grow up playing basketball? Um, you know, was it your was it your sport? Did you have a sport per se? I, I was uh, baseball and basketball were my two favorites. And, and that's what I played all the time. That's what I played in high school. Uh, I wasn't good enough to go to the collegiate level in either, <clears throat> though I, I, I was hoping for it. But I knew <laughs> once I got there, that was not going to happen. But it was baseball and basketball. I was a, a huge Met fan as a kid. And uh, and obviously a huge Nick fan. And I've told this story a number of times. Um, I loved Walt Frazier when when I was rooting for the Knicks. 
And in our house, I put up a poster of Clyde, probably when I was years old. So we're talking 50 years ago. And my mother still lives in the house we grew up in. In fact, that was the house she grew up in as a kid. No so, way. So she's lived in that house, I think it's 87 over 89 years. And the poster is still up in the house. No way. I've told Clyde the story and, and then to, you know, years later to get a chance to work with him and, and he can become not just his partner, but become great friends. He just, you, you just don't think of these things. You don't dream these things up. It, it's like, no, this can't happen. Uh, but that was, it was a great neighborhood um, to grow up in. There were a lot of kids, a lot of wiffle ball games, a lot of basketball games. And, um, you know, I just, I cherish those, those, those memories back in those days. I'm sure I, I, I'm, I'm not going to say the person's name. You would know him. Our people would know him. I don't want to betray, betray the person's trust, but around a guy around your age, a New Yorker uh, was out with him the other night. And I'm just I, I, constantly fascinated by New York Knicks fans. I have many friends who are Knicks fans and New Yorkers who just, it's a weird, a weird relationship. You know, that and I, I, I'm a Knicks fan. I love it when the Knicks are good. It's better for the NBA. Um, you know, this there's no place like playing in Madison Square Garden. I just I'm fascinated by the Knicks fans. I said somebody should just do a documentary on Knicks fans because of the way that people tell their stories. And there's just this there's this, you know, this person, their dad brought them to the games as kids. And it's just a family thing. Talk to me for a second about how great Knicks fans are. Well, the, the interesting thing, Rex, is that the generations of Knicks Nick fans revolve around two eras. You know, so for me, growing up as a kid with the, the championship teams in 70 and 73, that they were the ultimate team. You know, just they worked so well together. They were so diverse in terms of their background. See, and I missed that. I missed that. Like I was like two. I was like five or six. So I remembered hearing those stories about those teams. So I never. And then you know, got I got Pat. But please finish. Sorry. No, no. So that's that was that generation. So for for so many um, families and kids and adults, that was what it was all about. The, the, the perfect teamwork, pass and move the ball, pass and cut. It just was. You know, it was this glorious. You work together as a team, you can beat everybody. So, so that's one set of Nick fans are like that. And that's all they care about. They just want their Nick teams to be like that, to share the ball and, and play team defense. Then you have the 90s Knicks, which were nothing but just tough, physical. You know, I'm a tough New Yorker with, with Ewing and Oakley and Starks. And it just was, it was a different type of uh, success that they had in terms of the way they played. So that's a whole nother new generation that they don't care, you know, about the Knicks in terms of, yeah, they want them to win, but as long as they're tough and play hard. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you put the two of them together and, and that's, that's what people want. That's what the Knicks fans want. They want the teams to, they don't want any selfish player who's just going down and, and jacking up shots, no matter how many he scores. And they don't want a team that doesn't play defense. And you put those two generations together and that's where you get a crazy fan base that wants nothing but that. I, I just find it fascinating because, you know, I come from a basketball rabid state uh, in Kentucky where, you know, everybody knows where the 
where the guy came from, what his parents' names are, the recruit, the incoming recruits. It's much the same way here. You guys know who's on your summer league teams. You know where that person's from. It's just, I, I just, uh, in the South, we call it, you're eating up with Nick's basketball. And it, it's something beautiful. The other thing I found beautiful about Nick's fans too, is if you come into the garden as an opposing player, and you're beating the Knicks, and you start playing pretty well. They'll start cheering for you sometimes. <laughs> well, they, they do. They do like um, and, and respect and, and appreciate greatness, and that's happened over time. Whether it's you know Steph Curry the other night with with him setting the record, um, I, I thought the way they embraced his greatness was wonderful. Uh, Kobe had that all the time as well. Mm-hmm. So it's um, it's nice to see that they just. You know, certainly they want their team to win, but they respect the greatness when it comes into the garden. And, and you know, New Yorkers have, I've, I've lived in New York my whole life, and we get such a bad rep. <laughs> New Yorkers aren't patient. That's not true, certainly with Knicks fans, because if you're drafted by the Knicks, they, you're one of their family. And, yeah. you know, they'll wait for potential for six, seven years. Yeah. They, sometimes it's delusional that they're waiting for this player to turn into something special because they had one great game rookie year. And they just, they never want to see the, the, the draft picks traded because they're thinking, you know what, he's going to turn it around this year. He's going to turn around. So they're very patient with their own draft picks. I'm with you. Um, Mike, uh, obviously I know everybody, every interview you do, you talk about bang and you're asked about bang, uh, your trademark phrase. I, do you remember? Do you remember there come there being a time where, okay, this this has kind of taken on a life of its own. Do you remember what year? Do you remember where you were, where you where you thought, okay, well, this is kind of works. You know what? I, I don't I don't remember the year. I, I wish I could remember the year where it started to catch on. I do remember when I first started using it. Um, I used it on radio a little bit, and I didn't like it because I felt it. I think, I, I don't know, for some reason, I just didn't feel it worked on radio. And then I started doing it on, on uh, TV. I was doing high school games, uh, this high school game of the week package for Sports Channel America. And I were used there, it on Was there a three-point line yet? No, no. And um, it was, uh, you know, I, I'd use it for a big shot because that's when I started yelling it as a Fordham student. The first time I started doing it, about, I was a Fordham student. I used to go to all the games that I didn't broadcast and if a Fordham player hit a big shot, and again, there was no three-point line, that's what I would yell out in, in the stands. And there was even... <laughs> that's um, amazing. There was one writer, I had used it a few times, and one writer noted how the word he used to describe it was lame. <laughs> and it bothered me a little bit. I'm like, you know what? I, I don't think it's lame. I think it's pretty good. I, I, the reason I liked it to use it, Rex, was... Because in a big moment when the crowd's going crazy, uh, I think it's really hard for any announcer, even if you have one of those great, great deep voices, to overcome the crowd. And you need to have a good, concise call. And it's a one-syllable word that, you know, has a little excitement to it. And then you can get out and let the crowd take over so you don't have to try and force your voice to overcome the crowd. So that's why I I can't remember when it started to become a little more popular. but I, I started getting feedback from people that said they, they, they thought it was good. So I stuck with it. Hey, after listening to uh, so many iconic Knicks and 
NBA broadcasters, was there any one person in particular that you, you kind of molded yourself after? Oh, well, growing up as a Knicks fan and growing up in New York, Marv Albert was always was and always will be the greatest basketball play-by-play voice of all time. He just, you know, his, there's so many great things about him as a broadcaster, but for me, it was always uh, the drama at the end of a close game. Nobody could convey that drama. The way he, he raised his voice, that high intensity call uh, was just perfect. He, you know, he was like a, a, a conductor uh, yeah. with the, symphony orchestra just conducting the game as it goes along the highs and lows and at the big finish the crescendo he just knew all the right notes and he did it all the time so you know there's there's i can't even imagine how many countless thousands and thousands of young broadcasters who took from them but there were others too that 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 um i really loved growing up um there was a local uh, New York broadcaster didn't do much national name, Jim Gordon, who was, was fantastic. Uh, I was a big Don Cricky fan, but Don two guys Cricky. really struck to me was, was uh, Dick Enberg and Vern Lundquist. And it was because there, there was, there was a warmth about them on the air. You just, you felt like whoever was sitting next to them was their best friend. And you felt like you were part of that friendship, the way they spoke and the way they talked about, uh, players as people, the personal stories, the personal anecdotes, and those two really had uh, had a big influence on me as well. You know, you you talked about having the picture of Clyde on your wall. I mean, I can't imagine um, what it must have been like those first five years doing radio with him. You know, what? How did that help prepare you to step right into you know doing the TV at, and you know, coming right after, you know, the all-time great Marv Albert. Well, Clyde has, there are two, there's Clyde and then there's Walt Frazier. Um, you know, Clyde is the flashy uh, dresser, uh, the enormous vocabulary. And, you know, he was a flashy player as well. But off the court and off the air, he's he's a fairly yeah. reserved man. And, and to the point, almost being a bit of an introvert. And when I first went to, to, to be with him, I was so nervous. We call a practice game together first in the preseason. And, you know, I, I'm petrified. <clears throat> I had met him, excuse me. I had met him, but had not worked with him yet. And, you know, he's this guy that I've idolized since I was eight years old. And I, Rex, I can't explain it. Um, but I said to him, the, the first thing I said, hey, Clyde, it's a thrill to work with you. I'm so honored. Um, listen, you just, you be yourself and I'll follow suit with you. And, uh, you say whatever you want, whenever you want. I gave him all the, you know, openings to, so he was comfortable with me. And for some reason from that practice game on, we just, we just hit it off. And I realized then that he was a little on the shy side. Um, and it, it, you know, it just, sometimes the, the partnerships work right away. Sometimes you, it takes years to get that chemistry for us. It was, is right from the get-go. And uh, I can't explain why, but it's just been, it's been, un- it's been unbelievable. What a thrill though. I mean, I think back, I had posters of, you know, David Thompson and Dr. J on my walls and I can't imagine it, you know, 20 some years old sitting down next to them and, and, you know, just doing a broadcast and not wanting to constantly ask them everything under the sun. Uh, well, he's what, so giving, he's so giving on, on yeah. telling Stories, uh, both on the air and off the air. One of my favorite things is 
there are certain arenas now. This isn't my favorite thing that they put the, the broadcast locations up into the stands, like at the top of the first level. Do you like and, that? Oh, hate it, hate it. Okay. Uh, you much when you're not down on the court. But what we do is we have to we tape our open on the court and then have to walk up through the stands to the broadcast location. And I always walk behind him because I want to see the fans when he's walking up and they realize that Walt Frazier was walking past them, the wide eyes, the people can't believe it. And this is, this is, you know, kids, but these, these are, are men in their sixties and seventies who just can't believe that Walt Frazier is there. It's, it's um, you know, he's just, he's one of those athletes that, that was popular, not just in New York, but because of the way he, he carried himself was popular throughout the country. And it, the popularity is still there when we go from arena to arena. Well, you and you've said it exactly, you know, with Clyde, I, I remember meeting him for the first time in the garden. I'm sure it was. Um, and, you know, you think um, he's this bigger than you got. He, you think his personality is going to be as big and as and as fabulous as his wardrobe. And, you know, when the camera is off, he he's the nicest guy. He's a fan. You know, he he uh, I've never I I don't think I've ever heard him just you know uh, take a dump on a player I mean he he's a he's a pro's pro I mean what a good guy yeah he and he um you know Rex he embraces who he is and understands what he means to people wow so been extremely patient with the fans he takes his time with them in terms of not just you know signing stuff but talking with them he loves to show off his championship rings but he understands he's got a place in New York. He, he's one of the most beloved athletes in the history of New York. And he's not from Atlanta. I mean, he's not from New York. He's from Atlanta. But he is as much a New Yorker as any human being I've ever yeah. met. I've lived there the whole time because he, he gets it. He gets what he means to people. And he knows it's important for them. And um, he's really, he, he, I think it's helped his longevity of doing this so well for so long in that it's important to him too, to give back to those fans who made him who he is today. Yeah. Just beautiful. Uh, all right. I want to go back a little bit it, around the same time, mid nineties, when the Knicks were preparing for greatness, the 94 NBA finals, when they pushed the Spurs uh, in 99, how do you process what's about to unfold as a lifelong Knicks fan? Um, I, I remember I had to tell myself, um, cause the 94 finals, I was doing radio. Mm -hmm. I had to tell myself, um, you just, you have to relax. You can't get too excited <laughs> because I, I, I taught by Marv Albert and, and we had a great boss back in the day, Mike McCarthy who worked for the MSG network. He was the executive producer and would always tell me, don't get too high in the first quarter, you know, save it for the big moment at the end. And, um, so I had to keep telling myself because I, I mean, I was hyperventilating in those games. <laughs> I bet. And it was the, the 94 finals was, you know, it was the ultimate roller coaster ride because, you know, they, they, they were up three, two thinking they're going to win. All I have to do is win one. You also had the OJ game uh, during the course of the right. ninth finals. It just was, I mean, it was a little bit of everything in that experience. And it was, it was, you know, crushing at the end that they lost but it still was an unbelievable experience. And uh, one of the things that I take from that was Derek Harper, uh, his post, Derek Harper, I think, you know, um, he was a great competitor, great competitor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and 
he, he hated losing as much as any player that I'd come across. And after that game seven loss in the locker room, you know, he was crushed. He was just devastated that they lost. But he also remembered what that season meant to him and what that season meant to the city. And he was able to combine the gratitude and the appreciation for, for what that season meant and the devastation of the loss. Like uh, it's, it was one of the great post-game press conferences. That wasn't a press conference, just him sitting in his locker that I've ever seen. That's the way I felt. It was, it was just such a wonderful time for the city, for the Knicks fans. Um, and it gave you a little bit of everything. It gave you joy and it gave you heartache. It's beautiful. And I, I didn't know that, uh, that story. Um, and Derek Harper, perfect example of what you're saying. He's one of yours now. He's, he's a Nick now. He was always a Mav to me. Like he was right. a Maverick. The second he came here, and it helps that the team is good. I get that. But he's a Nick. He's a New York Nick, right? Yes, no question. Yeah. And that's, you know, again, it depends on, on, on the type of person you are. But just, for example, like Doc Rivers. Doc Rivers was on that team, but he was hurt. Yeah. That, Derek Harper was playing because Doc got hurt. But Doc only played two years in New York. Doc's and, an Atlanta Hawk. Right. To so many. But <laughs> yeah. fans loved him because of the kind of player he was during that time. And, and then, you know, the other memory for me, it was, it was game six. And I don't know if you remember the end of game six, John Starks had a three-pointer at the buzzer that would have won the championship for the Knicks. But Akeem got his fingertips yep. on blocked the shot. And I'm calling the game on the radio, and we're down at the other end of the floor by the Knicks bench. And I couldn't see from my vantage point if John was behind the three-point mark. So when he takes the shot, I don't know if this is going to tie the game or win it. Or it's going to win the championship. Now, normally, as a play-by-play guy, if you can't see the feet, you look at the officials because the officials will have that, that arm up signifying it's a three-point attempt. But all three officials were blocked. Um, players were blocking them. So I didn't know. So if that shot goes in, I don't know if it's going to be – stumped. Yeah, I, I could have screwed up the biggest call in Knicks radio history <laughs> that would have won a championship. And it's uh, – I, I, who knows? I, I don't even want to think about what would have happened. But I had no idea if that shot goes in. If it's tied, we go to overtime, or the Knicks win the title. Oh, man, that's insane. Just insane. Um, uh, for a second, because I've gotten to know him over the last 30 years, I wanted, you know, I was playing in the NBA at that time, and, you know, you don't really root for other other teams. But Patrick Ewing, longtime friend, um, talk for a second about what Patrick means to, to New York um, and, the, and the Knicks fan base. Well, he's one of my favorite people in 30 years of, of being around the NBA, and it took a few years to get there because yeah. Patrick, um, and it was the same thing with Knicks fans, he was so respected, but he wasn't beloved until the end. And yeah. he's become more beloved afterward because now when you look back for Nick fans, um, you know, he just what he the type of effort he put out at both ends of the court, night in and night out, how much pain he played through night in and night out in just trying to bring the title. Fans now appreciate that. And he's become beloved. But, you know, he was. When he was on Georgetown, you know, how many people didn't like Georgetown yep. and wasn't as comfortable with the media? And part of that, um, you could understand because some of the, the things that he had to deal with and heard, some of the racism he heard both at Georgetown and 
when he first started in the NBA, um, you know, he, he was a really private man. And he started as, you know, New York, as he got more and more going, it was, it was, he started to let out who he was. And it took me about three, four years to get there with him. Uh, we had a strength and conditioning coach named Greg Brittenham, uh, one of the great guys. I too. know Greg. Greg kind of put in a good word. We said to Patrick, this, this kid's all right. It'll be all right. So Patrick accepted me and then we, we started a friendship. And he is, he's, he's so bright and he's so funny. Um, and I always wish back then he was able to show that to more people, but that's not who he was then. And, yeah. and because of some of the scars from what he had to deal with, that wasn't easy for him, but he's certainly grown out of that. And he is, uh, I agree with you. He's just, he's a wonderful, wonderful man. Absolutely. Um, you think there'll ever be a more improbable, uh, sort of two week period than when the, in the New York Knicks, uh, were sweeping the NBA with Lynn sanity, uh, did the first month of this season with the whole bing bong thing. Does that rank up there? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> the, the insanity thing, Rex, people ask me, like, what's your, what's the best game you did? What's, uh, what's the most, you know, most, your favorite call? My favorite two weeks of all time, the most fun I've ever had in broadcasting were those two weeks of insanity. Wow. Uh, I've always been a big fan of the underdog. Um, I always like that role player who does so many things, but doesn't get the, uh, the recognition, whether financially or in the headlines. And so here this kid comes out of nowhere in a team that was just, they were reeling at the time. And for two weeks, he, he became maybe the most famous athlete in the world, playing at a level that very few have ever played on, to the point where, I mean, you couldn't wait to get to the arena. It's just, you couldn't wait for that next game to see what he was going to do next. And I've never described NBA players as giddy, but his teammates watching this, they were giddy. It was the joy they had for him and his success. And, and it wasn't just because he turned the team around, but it was the way he handled it uh, and the way he played for, for those two weeks under an enormous pressure because all of a sudden he had the biggest spotlight on him. It was just so much fun. And, and it's interesting. He's, he's, um, he's talked long about – that experience and he feels a lot of it he didn't handle the right way uh, because he wasn't ready for something like that yeah. those two three weeks and people think it lasted months no no it was not that long uh it was it was as fun as i've ever had as a broadcaster amazing um you know i i i was drafted by charlotte in the late 80s and uh at the time there was no team there were they just had they had uh Drafted two guys in the expansion draft, Muggsy, Bogue, and Del Curry. And when I showed up at Park first day, uh, Del was standing out there with a broken arm with his wife, Sonia, and baby Stefan to help me move into my place. Uh, so I go way back with those guys. And I wanted to preface that by saying, by, or preface that first. Um, was there ever a moment like Steph? the other night breaking the three-pointer that stopped the game at MSG for like 10 minutes. Can you think of another time? No, no. I mean, yeah. the only celebrations that go like that is when, you know, teams make it to the finals for the first time or teams win the title for the first time in a long time. Um, but no, for, for something like that. And tell me if you agree with this, I think a lot of it has to do with who he is as a person 
the way he plays the game and also the fact that he looks like any guy that you might see down in the park when you're picking 10 guys in a pickup game. It, it's just he has all the ingredients to make it so easy to root for him. And I think that played a big part of it. Um, and the fact that he, you know, he's, he's changed the game dramatically with, with what he's been able to do. Uh, top, top five most relatable athlete of all time. I mean, or top five, maybe the way he's put together to handle all of it. I, I just, I've known him since he's a baby and he's, he's one of the more, I mean, not that he doesn't have his concerns and worries as we all do as people, but to be thrust into this where he didn't really become a star until after he, he was in the NBA, you know, he didn't get it in high school, got a little in college, but he had to really earn that. Can you think of anybody in our, I mean, that's, I mean, there, there probably are, but he's, he's awfully well put together mentally, isn't he, Mike? Well, which Rex, I, I, I couldn't agree more what you said about that. Not everybody would be able to handle the spotlight the way he's been. But, um, you know, back in the day when you played, when his dad played, yeah, there was a spotlight, but it's nothing like today. Yeah. Uh, and he, he's remained, he's kept his humility. Uh, he's kept his faith. Uh, he's such a, a family man, both with his parents and with his own kids and his wife. Um, how he keeps it all together is, is amazing. And I, I think, and he'll tell you the secret for his, his career is um, that the work ethic is, is off the charts. I mean, he's got a gun given skill, but, but it's how much work he's put in. And he says he hates his summers often because the work is so hard, but that allows him, as you know, as well as anybody, when you, when you get out into the game, that allows you the comfort, know that you prepared in every possible way for whatever's going to happen that night on the court. Um, but his, his ability to deal with all of this emotionally and mentally and still perform at that high level and still uh, not have any slip-ups off the court and, and who he is as a, as a man yeah. is, is so impressive. You know, the, the other thing that's so well put, the other thing about him uh, that, you know, people talk about a little bit now, in the 80s and 90s when I was playing and <sighs> – you know, the game was so much different. You ran down. If you had a fast break, you ran. If you didn't, you'd go down and you'd set something up. And for instance, if there was going to be a play for me, you know, we'd go down, we'd kind of set up. I'd run off a pick or two, maybe two. He, and, you know, that was what I was in shape to do. You know, if you'd have had me run off eight of eight screens in that half court, I'd have been too tired to shoot, much less play defense. His conditioning is superhuman, right? That, that's it. That's exactly it. And that's why when, when so many young players and players in the NBA try and duplicate what he does, they can't do it. They can't. Because of the conditioning and because the amount of hours he's put in on the skill portion of it, whether it's ball handling, whether it's shooting, um, it's, that's the whole key. Yeah. And there's a lot of players with talent, but there are very few that have had his type of work ethic where he sacrificed so much to get there. Yeah. And you know, some of it is just God given because I know how much he plays golf in the summer. <laughs> not right. uh, you've called more NBA finals than any other broadcaster in NBA history. Are there any games or particular moments that set themselves apart for you uh, above everything else? Well, calling 
Um, first, as you mentioned earlier, uh, calling the Knicks in the finals was um, was just a thrill and meant so much. And that was early in the career. And I don't know if I appreciated it as much because, you know, you thought they had a chance to be there a number of years. Um, so that was huge. Um, for me, you know, uh, shots that determine or plays that determine who wins and who doesn't, you know. So Ray Allen's shot in, in game six, uh, that's the one that might stand out the most because if he misses that shot, um, then it's the Spurs that win the championship. And that, who knows if that changes everything uh, in terms of what happens in Miami, what happens in San Antonio. And then the LeBron James block um, in game seven of the finals of 2016 um, because if Iguodala hits that shot, the Warriors are going to win and Cleveland doesn't get their championship. And, and being in Cleveland so much during that time, um, you realize what that meant to so many people in that city. It was the emotions of that city to, to have that happen to them was, was incredible. And that one play you can throw in the Kyrie Irving shot there too, but that, that block really was the one that, that stands out that made the difference between Cleveland finally getting their championship and it being another one of those just heartbreaking gut wrenching losses. Yeah, that that I was going to ask you about that game six uh, three pointer by Ray. I mean, and how how much that uh, you know that that make it solidified that team as maybe one of the most talented in NBA history, didn't it? And if that shot doesn't go in, maybe they're not right. And, and the beauty of that shot is, you know, I, I covered you know, hundreds and hundreds of games that, that Ray Allen played in, and I'm I'm one to get to the arena very early. And in, in any game that Ray Allen played in, I may have gotten there three hours early. He was there already on the court. He was made for that shot because he practiced that yeah. shot hundreds of times. And, you know, the, the other, another one that, that sticks out, I know it's, it's so recent, but to watch um, Giannis Atetokounmpo <laughs> go where he, he was in his life to performing the way he did in that game six in the finals to win a championship, it's, I, I think it's one of the most unbelievable stories in the history of professional yeah. sports. Uh, and you talk about a, a young man who has it all together, uh, who just sees the big picture, who understands where he was and how important it is to him where he is now and the way he treats people. Um, he's, he's one of my favorite athletes of all time as well. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and you, I mean, I know you'll remember, uh, I remember being at game one of the finals last year where he'd been out for 10 days to two weeks and what myself and you and everyone else we know would have been out for the rest of the season with that knee injury. And when I saw him warming up before the game, uh, I, I couldn't believe it. I remember turning to, you know, some of our NBA TV guys and going, I know if I'm his teammate and he doesn't play in this game, I'm going to be really mad because he looked, he looked unbelievably good. And then, you know, as that series went on, he just got better and better as his conditioning picked back up. But I'm with you. I, I just think the world of that young man and the other guy I want to ask you about. I'll always probably because I played against him and all that. I, I think Michael just he was a different animal than the rest of us. And that's not easy to say as a professional athlete. We don't want to really give that give that up to 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 someone else, but he was just different. Um, and I think because what you said earlier, you know, Stefan is more relatable. He's our size, more our size, you know, looks like he could be anybody. The guy, 
you know, LeBron James is, he's unbelievable to me. Another guy, you know, single mom moved from place to place growing up. Um, from the time he's been about 16 years old, everyone said, well, he's the next thing. He became the next thing and he's an unbelievable person. And I think that we, you know, you can not like the way LeBron plays. That's your prerogative. I don't get it, but fine. The hate that that man receives for, and all he does is win. And he's, the other thing I love about him, he tries to play every night. You know, he really does. Uh, talk to me for a minute about LeBron and, and kind of your take on him. Well, he came in as the most hyped player in the history of the game. And that has remained the same every single year in the league. So he's the one where the, the attention and the focus is on him more than any other player. He's had it his whole career. And to not have that pressure bother him and have his ups and and him get knocked down. That that year, his first year, he was in Miami. He, he was the number one villain. I mean, the yeah. number one villain. And he'll, he'll, there'll be plenty of people. It doesn't matter what he does. It'll never be enough. Um, and I don't believe in comparing great players from different eras to say he was the greatest, he was the great. I think it's, it's, it's a complete, a futile yeah. thing to do. But he takes a backseat to no one. Uh, right. The fact that that every single year, year after year, his team is there ready to compete for a championship um, in today's NBA is so difficult to do. And he might never get the, the full notice from 100% of the people, but I, I always feel the people that really know the game and understand the game and, and what the, the ultimate goal is for the game, uh, he takes a backseat to no one. I'm with you. Uh, I'll let you get out. I want to ask a couple more questions real quick, Mike. Um, that I, I think we've, we're all living through this, this pandemic, and it's been just a crazy time in the world with so much uh, sadness, death, and, and sickness. Um, you guys went to the bubble a couple uh, – it's not that been, been that long ago, a few months back. Uh, what was that experience like? How hard was it on you? How hard was it on everyone that was committed to staying inside that, that bubble, so to speak, in order to finish the NBA basketball season? Because I, I know I was just to say, you know, I didn't go to the bubble. I watched it. I couldn't believe how it looked. I couldn't believe how it sounded. I also have friends that were there for a long time. And I know what kind of, you know, it's basketball and it's work. I get it. But there was a sacrifice that was going on. Yeah, I would never use the word hard with what was going on around the country. Uh, there were challenges to being there. I was there 80 days. Um, second, I was allowed to go home one time for, for a few days. But it was, you know, mentally, you're away from your family. Um, I have a family with three kids, my wife and three kids. So being away from them so much was hard. Um, but you also knew that, in my opinion, you know, basketball – uh, had a place in society and yeah. we tried to get back to normal and what the NBA did to pull it off and what the players did to sacrifice, you know, for a lot of them, they had young children, my, yes. my kids 20s. So if, if my kids were young, like all under ages of 10, I don't think I could have done it. Uh, in fact, I probably would not have uh, yeah. volunteered. 
But for, for the players to sacrifice so much and be down there with all the restrictions they had, um, it was an amazing thing that was pulled off. And you still sometimes you wonder how it was done. Yeah. Uh, broadcasting games was a challenge because that was, you know, when there's nobody in the stands, you're doing a finals game and it's 10 minutes before the finals game and there's nobody there. It yeah. was hard uh, to not not to summon the energy, but it just didn't sound right. And and. What I really came away from, Rex, is that, and uh, somebody tweeted this out, and I thought it was perfect, and it said that fans are the oxygen of professional sports. Wow. And boy, did that come, come through when you were down there. It was you, you like you were yeah. you that oxygen, and it wasn't there, so it was so different. And uh, yeah. the, the fans really skyrocketed. Oh, that's beautiful. Just beautiful. All right, a couple more. Um, Mike, what's your favorite movie of all time? Oh, it's it's between Hoosiers and It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Love it. Uh, we'll mention to The Godfather. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Love it. Um, all right. And if, if you could uh, 50-yard line, center court, whatever, uh, in, in whatever arena, front row center for any person to see any person perform, hear any person speak dead or alive. Oh. Who is that? Wow. Perform like a player, uh, perform, give a speech, uh, anything, uh, a band. You know, I, um, I never saw the, the Beatles perform live. I just, I, I watched the documentary and was blown away. I'm a huge Beatle fan. So it'd be kind of cool to, to hear them perform. Um, Absolutely. I, I'd say Springsteen, but I've seen Springsteen about 40 times in concert. Have you really? So, I've never um, seen him. You know, a, a play, I, I would love to see, let me pick a basketball thing. Uh, I never got to see, Will Chamberlain or Bill Russell play in person. Same. And I think that would be pretty cool to watch those two matched up in a game and, and go at each other. Um, you know, it's like we now, you know, 30 years from now, people are going to say, oh, I wish I could have seen LeBron James play. I wish I could have seen Steph Curry play. Uh, I wish I could have seen uh, a Chamberlain-Russell matchup. Absolutely. Mike, I can't thank you enough. Uh, get get those Knicks turned around. They're kind of the the Kentucky Knicks now anyway, from Kenny Payne to Julius Randle to Emmanuel Quickly to Kevin Knox, so many Kentucky guys on that team. You got to get them going for me. I'll do my best. And if I could, if I, if you don't mind, Rex, uh, want to thank you for, for first off, for sharing your story and the ups and downs you've had. Uh, I, I'm sure, or at least I hope you know the impact that that has had on so many people when they see somebody like you being able to overcome stuff and admit to, to things. Um, it, you'll never have a bigger impact in your life than what you've had on people by sharing that story. And then by your using your platform to raise money for people who need, um, you are, uh, you're a Hall of Famer, man, in terms of yeah. what great player, but the stuff you're doing now is, uh, is, is truly special. So thanks for that. It means the world, buddy. It really does. Teenage, life is hard. We get by with a little help from our friends, right? Damn straight. That's right. Thanks, Mike, so much. Come back and do it again. Love to, Rex. Love to. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. Much love. 
that was Mike Breen. Wow. Um, what a guy. I, uh, <laughs> I, it, it's just awesome to sit and be able to share, uh, you know, a few minutes with people that you long respected and, and watch what they've done. And then when you get a chance to talk to them that they're even better than you ever thought they were, well, that was the experience I just had with Mike Breen. And I hope you guys did too. Um, all right, that's episode 29. We'll be back uh, for episode 30 here pretty soon. Um, and breaking news while we were gone, Steve Kerr has been officially named USA basketball head coach. He has Monty Williams on his staff, so I feel very confident that we are in excellent hands, but well done, USA basketball. Happy for my buddy Steve Kerr. Um, what a guy, what a leader. All right, we'll see you next time for episode 30 of the Rex Chapman Show with super cool Josh Hopkins, powered by basketballnews.com. <laughs>